Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith, and currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. We turn to then Genesis chapter 7. Last week we looked at the first part of this chapter. We looked at verses 1 through 12. And some of the things that we learned from that lesson in those verses there, 1 through 12, one of the things we learned, obedience is a long-term commitment. We also learned that old age is no excuse for not being a worker for God. We in our society, we oftentimes go to work and we have a day yet future that we look forward to where we can retire. Those magic words, we get to retire as if that means we get to cease from our labors. That's not the picture that God has for his children. It's never the point where you get to say, you know what, I'm not going to do anything for God anymore. I'm going to just cruise and take it easy. Another thing that we saw last week, the study of last week was called The Waters Break Forth, right? We started to talk about how there was the bursting of the waters, the waters from below and the waters from above. And we looked at the canopy theory, the canopy theory having to do with the waters above. We looked at the ocean floor model, the waters coming from below. And could it be that both of these have play? It could be, because it does say in our text that the waters came from below and above. One of the other things that we learned about is that That day probably started off like any other day for the people that were living at the time of Noah. Another thing that we learned, and we ended with this, and it was kind of a fun thing, is that here in our Bible we don't have the name of Mrs. Noah. But one of the neat things that we saw is that there are other traditions, many traditions that have ark stories or ark legends, flood legends, or flood stories. One of them from a Chinese oral tradition ended up giving us a possibility of the name of Mrs. Noah. If you're interested in hearing more about that, I encourage you to listen to last week's study. So then, on to this week, we have Genesis chapter 7, picking it up at verse 13. Genesis chapter 7, verse 13 through 16. Let's go ahead and read those. On the very same day, Noah... Well, let me stop there for a moment. On the very same day, what day is that? Well, that day is actually referred to in verse 11, two verses earlier. Verse 11 says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. That's a particular day. He spells it out for us. One particular day. So when we get to verse 13, on the very same day, when it's referring to the very same day, most likely it's referring to that day spelled out, clearly described in verse 11. Continuing then with verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. 
And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. All right, let's look at a couple of these verses here. Verse 13, we already talked about that very same day. Verse 14, when it talks about kind, you remember we had a study, it came up last week, but it came up for the first time uh, the week before that, at least the first time in this narrative. We looked at this also when we were in Genesis chapter 1. But here we have it again, four times in this verse, the word that we have translated into English, the word kind. In Hebrew, it's min and it is not, I repeat, it is not a direct correlation for the word species. And that has created some confusion. Again, last week's study touched on that. The study before it is an excellent study. If you want to listen to that one, that's a better study for what we found out when we were looking at that. So when you run across the word in this narrative for kind, after their kind, after its kind, after their kind, it is not species. Okay. Another thing I want you to notice about verse 14, check out the language here, which I'm going to call global language. It's very encompassing, all right? It's pretty extensive. Listen to the words that I emphasize when I read this now. Verse 14, they and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. Do you hear the language there? That's pretty extensive. That is pretty much all-inclusive, all-encompassing. That language, here's what I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it global language, and here's why. Because this language makes it sound like the flood account that we're reading here is a global situation. It affects every beast. It affects every bird. It affects all the cattle. It affects every creeping thing. Now, there are people that would say, no, this is, this is just hyperbole. This is hyperbolic language that really, it, it doesn't mean what it really says. Well, my proposal is that if the Bible teaches something pretty plainly and pretty clearly, as I would suggest to you, this account sounds like a global account, that perhaps we should let it speak for itself. Why would somebody want to propose a local flood? You don't get that from the text here. You don't read this account and come away with the impression that it was a local flood. That's information that has to have been fed to you somewhere along the way. So why would somebody want to sell you a bill of goods suggesting this was a local flood? Well, there's a few reasons. One of them is by people that maybe want to try to reconcile what they hear scientists tell them with what the Bible says. I want to say this too. If you're getting your information from the Discovery Channel, if you're getting your information from the History Channel, all right, if you're getting your information from people who are putting together television programs like the BBC, if you're getting your, your information from these sources, I got to tell you, I have grown so disgusted with the treatment of such television channels and programs in their handling of God's Word. Why? Because here's a common theme that you'll see. Let's take the Bible and tell everybody what it says and tell everybody what it means and tell everybody what really happened, and we're going to sanitize it of miracles. We're going to sanitize it of God. And that's what you get. You get a watered-down version 
where all of the supernatural accounts, all the supernatural events are sanitized and explained away with natural phenomenon. And so you get ridiculous stuff like the crossing the Red Sea and they say, oh, well, it was just a really dry period. And they were able to cross because, you know, it wasn't really a big deal. It doesn't explain how the Egyptians drowned though. They want to explain it away and take away all the supernatural. And if they say it was just ankle deep water at that particular time, then that makes it even greater miracle because how did the Egyptians drown in ankle deep water? Surely they would have been able to make it as well. And here you have in the flood story, and I find television programs that are trying to say it was a local flood where the banks of the river just overflowed in a particularly rainy period. That's ridiculous, and that is not what God's Word portrays this event to be. God's Word clearly portrays this as a supernatural intervention by God coming down and doing something miraculous. And what I'm trying to emphasize, and you can hear it in the way I'm saying it, I'm trying to emphasize... When you're given a choice to believe what modern man would say and to believe what God's word says, when you have a choice to believe what the enlightened establishment would say and what God's word says, you know what I'm going to say. Trust God's word. I will gladly align myself in a category that maybe is classified as fools for believing God's word. Because I firmly believe when I get to heaven and I'm standing before God in his judgment time, I don't think that God is going to condemn me for believing what he said. But I tell you what, the reverse ought to be a concern where somebody would decide to disbelieve God's word and instead believe in somebody who doesn't believe in God. Be careful who you choose to believe. There are ramifications in such a choice. Lasting ramifications. Perhaps eternal ramifications. In verse 14, like I said, I'm calling this global language, where it uses the word every beast, all cattle, every creeping thing, every bird, and again, every bird. This is global language. This is language that suggests this was a global event. And why? Why a global event? Well, because it was a global problem. If you remember, the wickedness was worldwide. God is solving the problem of worldwide wickedness with worldwide judgment. You don't eradicate worldwide wickedness with a local flood. You eradicate, you deal with, you address worldwide wickedness with a worldwide flood. Okay? Verse 15. And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh. There's some more global language again, right? All flesh in which is the breath of life. By the way, what are you going to do with these animals once you get them on the ark? I mean, that's a lot of creatures that you're in charge of. Noah, that's got to be a big responsibility. He's feeling like he's shouldered, right? You're going to have these animals on the ark, and they're going to be in there while the waters come down, the floodwaters rise. I mean, maybe even some stormy conditions. Goodness gracious, what are you going to do with all these animals? I hope they behave. You know what? I, I ran across some commentaries that ended up saying something uh, like this. Here's a, here's a uh, typical thing I ran across. It says, many animals sleep, hibernate, or become very inactive during bad weather. That's a possibility here, isn't it? The text doesn't say whether the animals slept or stayed awake. The text doesn't say whether they behaved or didn't behave. But couldn't you see God doing that? I can. I can imagine God making it a little easier for Noah, right? One of the things I notice about this story is that God's able to do the impossible. 
It's up to man to do the possible. Could man possibly, I mean, even these eight people take care of all the animals? I suppose maybe it's possible, but it sure would have been easier if the animals came on board, found a nice place to cuddle up in some straw and go to sleep or hibernate. I could see my God doing that. Does it say he did? No, but he could have, and the text doesn't preclude it. So we have here in verse 15, more global language, all flesh. Verse 16, so those that entered, male and female, of all flesh. Hmm, there it is again, more global language, not a local flood. So those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God, that's Elohim, went in as God, Elohim had commanded him, and the Lord, Yahweh, shut him in. So here we have God, Elohim, and we have the Lord, Yahweh, both showing up in the same verse. We have Elohim showing up, and Yahweh showing up. We have God, we have Lord. We have both of them showing up in the same verse. The reason I bring this up is because, if you'll remember from last week and the week before, how there are some source criticism theologians that would say, this area of Genesis is written by two different people, and Moses took these accounts written by two different people and just kind of merged them together. And the proposal was, one account was written by author J and the other account by author P, because they don't know who the authors are. So they give them these names, J and P. They end up saying, the reason we can tell this is because author J uses this language and author P uses this language, and they would point to things like this, Elohim and Yahweh, and they would say, oh, this author is the one that uses Yahweh, so every time you see a verse that refers to Yahweh when you're going through this, then it's this particular author, and this other author, he's the one that uses Elohim, and every time you run across Elohim, that's an indication that that author was busy in that area, and they try to separate it based on the Elohim and the Yahwehs, and decide, okay, which pieces were from this author and which pieces were from that author, trying to figure out what it looked like beforehand, what the two documents maybe looked like before Moses put them together and merged them together. And of course, there's another whole camp that would say, that's ridiculous. You don't need that at all. It doesn't solve anything. In my perspective, I believe that God wrote it. I believe that this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit ends up moving Moses to take his pen and end up writing these words. So is it what God wants me to read? It is. It's what God told Moses to write, and inspired by the Holy Spirit, ends up writing it. Could he have used documents from other people? Yeah, he sure could have. Does it make any big difference to me? No, it really doesn't. But here in this verse, where you have Yahweh and Elohim together, it presents and creates a little bit of a problem for the people that would try to say that these are two different authors, because you have the merging of the two names here in this one verse. So who did it come from? J? Did it come from P? It seems to suggest that maybe these were a cohesive unit after all, all along. All right, so I'm throwing that out there for you, because you're going to probably run across that in your Bible studies in the future, and I want you to be aware of it. So this language here in verse 16, So those that entered male and female of all flesh, global language, went in as God, that's Elohim, had commanded him, and the Lord, Yahweh, shut him in. From our previous studies, you'll remember also that when we talked about Elohim and Yahweh, that Elohim is kind of the creator God, and Yahweh is kind of the personal God, but these are both one and the same God. They're just, their titles, their words, their, their names for God that convey or carry with it a certain kind of expectation as to the character and the nature of the being being discussed when you run across those passages. So a lot of times the Yahweh, Yahweh might be used in the places where you find it's a more intimate relationship type of situation going on, where Elohim typically might be a situation where it's the creator, sovereign, powerful God. 
All right? One and the same God. I want to make that clear. I'm not trying to tell you that there's two gods here in this passage. Not at all. This is one and the same God, but it, it draws out, if you will, different aspects, perspectives of the one and the same God. So God Elohim and God Yahweh. Think of it this way. If you were to ask somebody, do you have Jesus as your master and your savior? Well, sure, I can subscribe to that as my master and my savior. But don't those two words convey something slightly different from one another? Yet it can still be the same being, right? So if Jesus is my master, what does that say? What well, says he's got a certain authority over my life? If he's my savior, there's a certain amount of intimacy conveyed that goes along with that. Because as my savior, that conjures up a gratefulness within me, right? Whereas my master conjures up a certain responsibility I might have, yet being the one and the same God. All right, so you kind of think of the Elohim as kind of the master perspective of that, of that illustration. And the Yahweh is kind of the savior perspective of that illustration. So we have here, so those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. When Noah and his wife and his three sons and their three wives and all the animals get on the ark, it's not Noah grabbing onto a rope and getting his sons to grab onto the rope on the other side of the door and then pulling really hard to get that ark door closed. They didn't have to close the door. According to this verse, God closed the door. God closed the door. And you know what's interesting? Is those words actually, when you literally translate them, the shut him in part, it literally means covered him round about. Noah and his family and the animals inside. And the verse ends with the Lord covering him round about. Suggesting that he took care to preserve and protect them, to seal them up. To provide a covering. That's kind of cool. What's one of the sweet things about this verse, about the Lord closing the door, the Lord shutting him in? Well, one of the sweet things is it sounds like it's a uh, symbol for closure or safety, right? God's deliverance, maybe. That they're now safe inside when God has done what he needs to do to protect them, to seal them up inside. You know, Noah and his companions did their part when they were obedient. In those verses, chapter 6, verse 22, chapter 7, verse 5, where it says that they obeyed, or it says as God had commanded, they did that. And now here, God does his part. He seals the door, protecting them inside. That's one of the sweet aspects of this. But what is, what is one of the sour aspects when we run across this phrase that God shut him in? Well, one of the sour aspects of God shutting him in is that God ends up shutting everybody else out. He seals a decision they had already made. They had already made a decision to not go on the ark. If you remember from the New Testament, we find that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. What did that look like? My guess is that in the decades it took to build that ark, there were probably no shortage of people coming by saying, Hey, you crazy old man, what are you doing? And I bet he would take the time to say, God said he's going to judge this place. God's provided a way of escape. And if you're willing to submit to his authority... If you're willing to repent of your sins, there's place for you. Yet what ends up happening? Nobody else joins him on the ark. And when the Lord finally seals the door, they're sealed out. They've made their choice. And now there's, there's no changing it. 
You know, there's a New Testament story that's kind of like that. Turn to Matthew 25. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This is Jesus teaching. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go, rather, to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the wedding. And the door was shut. Kind of like the story we have here, right? The door was shut. In the story of Noah, when the door is shut, there's no remedy for the people outside. How does it end here in Matthew chapter 25? Well, verse 11 says, Afterward the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. So here we have in Matthew chapter 25, the realization at the end of this that it's a second coming parable. That at the time of his second coming, there will be people that looked like they were waiting for him and weren't actually ready. There will be people that will look like the rest of the ones that got in, but they're excluded and outside when the door is shut. It's a sobering realization to consider yourself as one of the ones in this group. Consider yourself as one of the ones that made it in, and the realization that there's half of the group missing that are outside, and the door was shut, and they can't get in. They're done. They're going to miss out on the festivities. And it looked like they were part of the group. They looked like the ones that made it in. There wasn't much difference, except they were not prepared. And now the door is shut, and there's no remedy for them. Folks, we also need to ask ourselves, am I in the group that's actually prepared? Am I in the group that's going to make it in the door? Or do I just look like people in the group that are going to make it in? Do I just look like the ones that are going to enjoy the festivities of this marriage feast? And when it comes down to it, I'm not ready. I haven't made preparations like the others have. Folks, let this be a time of self-examination to try to decide and determine whether or not you're in the group that's prepared and ready for the arrival of the Lord because He is coming again. He's coming on a day and in an hour when nobody expects. And that day, it might start off looking like all other days, just like it was in the days of Noah. And for the people who perished in the flood, caught them by surprise, even though there had been warnings all along. Just as it will be during the second coming, when Christ comes back, not as a lamb, but as a lion, when he comes back that second time, it's going to be a day that starts off just like all the others. You're either ready or you're not when that day arrives. Folks, get ready. Get ready.
The time is short. Going back to Genesis then. Today, obviously, we're in Genesis chapter 7, but what I want to do is I want to make reference to several verses, several passages from Genesis chapter 6 as well. I want to do this. I want to kind of summarize where we've come so far. In chapters 6 and 7, I want you to look at these verses and see what I see here. Chapter 6, verse 5. God sees the depth and extent of wickedness. And then in chapter 6, verse 7, it says, God determines worldwide judgment. Right? He decides he's going to need to judge the world. Verse 8, God's people find grace in his eyes, right? Doesn't Noah find grace in the eyes of God? And then in verse 13 here, God warns Noah of approaching disaster. Verse 14, God gives Noah a big job. <laughs> big job to build the ark, right? Verse 18, God promises Noah blessings and salvation. You find there in that verse the mention of the covenant, carrying with it the aspects of blessings and salvation. Verse 20, God does the impossible. When it talks about bringing the animals, right? It wasn't up to Noah and his sons to go out and wrangle these animals. God brought them. God did the impossible. But then you find that in the next verse, verse 21, God expects Noah to do the possible. God expects Noah to do the possible when he tells him to gather food and bring it into the ark. Verse 22, Noah obeys. Chapter 7, verse 6, God's followers persevere. So we've got Noah and his wife, his three sons, his, their wives, eight people in all. They persevere. They keep at it. This was a mammoth task, right, to build this ark. They kept at it, though. They persevered. Chapter 7, verse 13, God's followers wait inside the designated place of protection, inside the ark, the place designated by God. This is, this is where you're going to be when the, when the bad stuff happens. You want to be in here, right? So they wait in the designated place of protection. And then chapter 7, verse 16, God seals, secures, covers, and guards his followers as judgment is unleashed. This is a summary of the beginning of this flood account, right? Of chapter 6 and up through chapter 7, verse 16. This is kind of an encapsulation of what we've seen so far. Let me ask you this. Is it fair to describe Noah in this account as a representative of God's people? As a representative of God's followers? I would think so, right? Noah is a representative of his family, and he also is a representative of those who remain true to God. Followers of God, if you will. Does this short account that I have here reduced down to just a couple bullet points have any ramifications for us today? Is there maybe a pattern that might reveal something to us that might be pertinent to us? I would suggest yes. Just as we saw that the Noah story, the flood account, is useful in helping us to prepare for his second coming, Perhaps these bullet points serve the same purpose and maybe help us to prepare for his second coming. Here's what I mean. Let's, let's look at these again. And instead of Noah now, we're going to talk about God's followers. And if you are a follower of God, consider yourself in these places. God sees the extent of wickedness. Just as he did in the days of Noah, so he does now. Does God see the wickedness all around? He does. Did God see the wickedness back then? He did. Verse 7, God determines global judgment. Did you know that God has already declared that there's going to be a day of judgment on the wickedness that we're living in now? 
and instead of water, it's going to be fire. God determines global judgment. There is a day of judgment coming again, just as it came in the time of Noah. Chapter 6, verse 8. God's followers find grace in God's eyes. You know, it'd be easier just if God said, you know what, I'm done with you, and wiped everybody out. But for some strange reason and some great love, he decides to make a way of escape for people that find grace in his eyes. Verse 13. God warns his followers of approaching disaster. Has God warned us of approaching disaster? He has. Verse 14, God gives his followers a big job. God gives his followers a big job. If you're a follower of God, do you have a big job? Does that fit? Does that apply to us at all? Here's what I would want to say about that. In Noah's day, I don't imagine that Noah spent a whole lot of time watching football. I don't imagine Noah spent a whole lot of time going out fishing or that he spent a whole lot of time building a hot rod in the garage. These are all pastimes and hobbies that you and I would identify as being modern day diversions and things we might invest our time in. But I don't imagine, and it doesn't sound like it would be fitting for the character of Noah from what we see here, that he would be investing a whole lot of time in things that are going to fade away and won't have any eternal significance. On the contrary, it sounds like he poured himself into God's purposes and not his own pursuits. Verse 15, God guides his followers in how to do the job. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples of all nations. That's him guiding us today in the here and now on how to do this big job. Verse 18, God promises blessings and salvation for his followers. Doesn't he do the same for us now? Verse 20, God does the impossible. He leaves for us to do the possible. Sometimes we say, oh, I can't do it. And we back away from things that we can do. In his strength, we can do. And the things that we can't do, he does. So God's got the impossible. That's not a burden we need to bear. But know full well that if it's something you can do, he expects you to do it. He's not going to do for you what you can do on your own. And it's the same as a parent to my kids. I am not going to do for them something they can do on their own. I would be depriving them of developing the character that they need to develop by doing the things that they can do. And so if I see something that they can do, I'm going to let them do it and insist that they do it, and I'm not going to step in to help. At best, I'm maybe going to engage in showing them that they can do it, encouraging them along in doing it. And that's what God would do with us. He would step in and encourage us to do it. He would step in and maybe show us how to do it. But by golly, if it's something that's possible for us to do, he's going to want us to do it. Verse 21, God leaves the possible for his followers to do. Verse 22, God's followers obey. There seems to be a little bit of a shortage of that today, but not as much of a shortage as it was in the days of Noah. If you're a follower of God, though, you need to be obedient. It's not something to say, I got my ticket to heaven, I'm good to go. I don't really need to concern myself with living righteously. Yes, you do. Your conduct and your actions, they broadcast your relationship. And if you are living in sin, I would say that suggests your relationship with God isn't there. And you might end up being in the group that's not prepared on the day he arrives and you're outside the door saying, please let me in. 
chapter 7, verse 6, God's followers persevere. And that's what we need to do as well. This is not a short-term commitment. Living for Christ, you're all in and it's for all your life. It's about persevering. Verse 13, 7, 13, God's followers wait inside the place of protection. What is that for us today? We don't have an ark we can go inside. John 15, 4, Jesus says, abide in me. Where is it we're to wait? In Christ. Not in us. Not in our own strength. Not in our own pursuits. Not in our own pastimes and adventures and desires. We're to wait in Christ. And then chapter 7, verse 16, God seals and secures and covers and guards his followers as judgment is unleashed. When judgment is unleashed in this time to come, God secures us and seals us, covers us and guards us. He protects us in the midst of the judgment. So one of the questions somebody asked was, okay, I got this end time scenario in my mind. Does this passage support the pre-trib rapture and the post-trib rapture, right? I mean, that's one of the questions. Oh, look, it's a pre-trib rapture illustration because it shows that Noah and his family, they were, they were taken out. When the judgment fell, they were removed and taken out of the way. And then you got the post-trip perspective where they say, no, no, no. If you look, they're there the whole time. As the judgment's coming, they're there, but they're protected. So really, both camps don't really have much more over the other in using this passage. It seems like it could be used either way. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to go through your word. Lord, there are so many places on this world that they don't have Bibles. Bibles are so scarce that there's, there's a starvation for your word. There's a famine of your word. In other places, it's not just a famine of your word and it could be solved by having your word. In other places, it's about dying if you're caught with a Bible. And God, still here in this country, we have the luxury, the privilege, the honor. We have the right still to have Bibles and to be able to open them up and read them and find out what you would say to us. We can spend as much time in your word as we want without significant repercussions. I pray, God, that you would help us to take advantage of this luxury with the realization, the understanding that it may not always be available to us. Thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word. Help us to hunger and thirst to know you more through your word. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.